respect and fear and respect and politeness for me are not the same things. You know, respect is about something deeper. Hello, this is Art Fictions. I'm artist Gillian Knipe and welcome to the final episode of this special culture exchange series in conjunction with the British Council's international season. Today we meet Paula Bella, an amazing artist, curator and academic who has selected Comfort Food by Alan Van Neerven. Both artist and poet are part of the indigenous population of a place we commonly refer to as Australia, and their works share a sense of the present as defined by their own experience and the spirits of their ancestors within a culture that dates back tens of thousands of years. Paula's dynamic sculptural installations and eclectic approach to curating reveal a commitment to complicated truth-telling. Her practice is intertwined with the personal, and the personal is underscored by protest, all flavoured with humour and genuine warmth. It was particularly challenging to put together this podcast because I really wanted to support Paula's full voice, not just an edited down version. So an unabridged recording will be published on a different platform listed in the accompanying podcast notes. But right now, Let's hear Paula starting with her embracing laughter and her music obsessions. What is on your t-shirt, Dolly Parton? <laughs> She's the bloody queen, that's why. Do, do you listen to her podcast? Yeah, I've, I've listened to the whole thing twice. Dolly Parton's America, it's fantastic. So you might not know this, but Blackfellas in Australia, we are in general huge country and western fans i've been listening to dolly parton since i was a baby i grew up on country music that was the main music i listened to as a child did you really yeah and i still listen to it we like all kinds of music country and western (laughs) (laughs) yes that that line in the blues brothers brought my family a lot of joy so let's just start paula bala I am so thrilled to have you here on Art Fictions today. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You've chosen Comfort Food by Alan Van Neerven, and (laughs) they are a writer of Monanjali and Dutch heritage. And Comfort Food is a collection of 56 poems which portray, and this is my impression, right? Bodily experiences, contextual experiences and metaphorical experiences with and around food. And sometimes there are jumping off points as well. I hoped that you could start us off by reading one of the poems. No pressure. (laughs) I thought you might do that because there are two in particular that respond to works of art that I love. I mean, I, I love the entire book of poetry. I adore all of Alan's work and... I'm very lucky that um, I get to call her a friend as well. And I've been able to collaborate with her a couple of times. So I'm going to read Surfboards. Ellen wrote this in response to an artwork by the brilliant Aboriginal artist Vernon Arkey, and it's called A Contented Slave. Vernon's work itself addressed the Cronulla racist riots. So it goes, you can name six beaches where deeper riots started and haven't finished man's moral necessity, synthetic polymer surfboards with a human debt. When does a man cease to be a man, standing up in the water, rising, standing, making contact, contact, 
meaning death. So when were the Cronulla riots? They were recent and as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists, as Indigenous peoples in this place, most of us are concerned in our work in addressing racism and how it continues, as we say, in the colony. And the brilliant Professor Chelsea Wadigo, who's an Aboriginal woman scholar and a critical race scholar, she's just written this fantastic book recently called Another Day in the Colony. And so for a lot of us, we call Australia the colony. And also to remind people that colonisation hasn't ended here and that we are not post-colonial despite what some academics say. I mean, it is like things are frozen in time, which is ridiculous. And in your culture, that idea of time is really quite different to, let's say, can I just call it Western culture, just as a shorthand? Yeah. So perhaps you could say a little bit more about that before we move on about the book. Yeah, sure. And the other thing I want to say too, before I go any further, is custom for me is to acknowledge a country where I'm sitting. So the traditional owners where I am is the Bunurang and the Woiwurrung of the Wurundjeri peoples. And they are language, clan and tribal groups of the Greater Eastern Kulin Nation. So I'm in what's known colonially as Melbourne and I'm in Footscray, which is the Western suburbs, very working class migrant part of Melbourne. And also as a Westie, <laughs> as a proud Westie, um, my father is an Italian migrant. But that's all part of my identity. So a little bit like Alan having other heritage as well as Aboriginality. But coming from that position, that standpoint of Aboriginality means that we might have other bloods within us. But our lived experience, our cultural standpoint and identity is as Aboriginal people. From that comes this very vivid reality that we are not post-colonial. We are living in an ongoing colonisation of our lands and waters. And I think some academics here in particular like to speak about it as post-colonial because it's less challenging and it removes them from the process so they're not complicit or implicated. But everybody is, we all are. Even for myself as an Indigenous person, I'm not on my mother's matriarchal homelands, which we can trace back for countless generations. So I have to live on other people's country to do the same thing that other people in this place do, non-Aboriginal people, you know, move to major cities for work and study and art opportunities and all the rest. So that implicates me too in living on other people's lands. It means I have a responsibility to be a respectful citizen of their lands, not of this country, because I don't see myself as Australian. There's some parts of Australian culture that I'm fond of, I guess that's what it means to acknowledge that this is an ongoing colony and I'm a sovereign Indigenous person. Our sovereignty was never ceded in this place. That's right. And I want to talk about this a little bit more, although we do we do also need to talk about the book. Yes. But you do, I understand, or refer to yourself as a sovereign woman, as a Wemba Wemba and Gunditjmara. Gunditjmara, yeah woman from the Day and Egan families, respectively from the Missions, Framlingham and Monacala, and also as a Footscray-born Western Suburbs Black Fella. And it's Black Fella, isn't it? It's F-U-L-L-A. Yes, most of us down south, we say Fella, and some people might say Fella if they've come from like the northern states. So it just really depends. And just like there's lots of different colonial dialects around in different colonial states, there's also different Aboriginal dialects and obviously languages. And um, part of being, you know, not just a black fella um, or an Aboriginal person, when we say black fella, we don't mean that in any gendered way. And it's a very self-determined 
decolonial term. So it's gender neutral. Yeah, that's quite enough without having to say you're Australian as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So you said you had two poems in this book. The other poem was Spectra of Birds. And it's a response to Madeline Kelly's artwork, Spectra of Birds, uh, from 2014 to 15. In order of the most open to the most closed, these are our birds, with beaks like milk carton spouts, shake before opening. They come with an expiry date of three to four years. The tawny frogmouth is so easy to flatten. Bassin thrush, chocolate milk, brown cuckoo dove, bronze custard, sooty oyster catcher, tastes better with oil. Water your gardens with milk to neutralise the earth. So tell me about that poem and that piece of artwork. Well, prior to this poem, I didn't know about Madeleine Kelly's artwork. So she's a German-born visual artist who's based in Queensland and did a practice-led PhD about her work, which really interests me because I did my um, PhD as a practice-led project as well. So it made me curious why Alan had responded to this work and also because in our family, in our clan group, birds are our totems. I even have one tattooed on my arm, which is the willy wagtail. And that's your bird, I believe, the willy wagtail. Yeah. How do you know that? <laughs> have you been snooping on me? I have indeed. <laughs> well done. My grandmother gave me the willy wagtail as my personal totem and her grandmother gave it to her. So it feels so precious to me Mm. because they're all gone. And and my nan passed away relatively young at 64 in 1993. And I was very, very close to her. And she's probably one of my greatest influences regarding writing and artwork. And so the other bird that's very important to us in our family in the matriarchal line and what's known as the women's bird is the tawny frogmouth. So that just jumped out at me. And so I wanted to know what this work was about. And so I had a look at the image, these quirky little birds that look like they've been created like Alan in furs, you know, from these little milk cartons. Yeah, they've got a sort of origami look about them, haven't they? They do, yeah. And then I was trying to identify them the way that I feel Alan did through this work. Because Alan's got this particular way of writing that's not absolute, even though they're really evocative. So you have to work a little bit. And her poems, including this one, they have a like a lightness, but then there's lines that will just hit me in the gut. I really love them because in a sense, that's the approach to my visual work. And I try that with my own writing, or I hope to. So I didn't know how much she was commenting on this work, critiquing it or embracing it. Maybe she's doing all of those things. So it just really, really intrigued me. And this notion of flattening has been on my mind with the pandemic and I keep playing with this notion of what does it mean now to unflatten and can we and if we do you know a bit like when you rinse out a recycled milk carton for example and then you might try to stand it up and you notice after a little while that it's not as strong as it was when it was full and I'm thinking you know as we unflatten and reassemble ourselves like how vulnerable or how strong or how damaged are we So I was just thinking about the notion of Indigenous people. We constantly have to unflatten after incidences, after a racist incident or incidents like the Cronulla riots, whether it's the, you know, relentless deaths in custody that take place. You feel like you're sort of just getting through one thing and then another thing will flatten you. 
So it's a bit like trying to cope with the ocean. That's interesting you talk about the ocean because when you're talking and when you're talking about Alan's work and something that I felt when I was reading her poems is a sense of of water, of flow. Mm. If that were a river, for instance, it hits upon fallen branches, upon rocks. There's all sorts of things which change its direction. And, you know, you were talking about some sort of flow that you feel with her writing and then all of a sudden, bang, and you're Mm -hmm. sort of jolted. I was really drawn to quite contrasting poems because some of them are extremely directly political. For instance, the one about her grandfather having fought in the war and then not being entitled to entry to the RSL, not being entitled from any compensation, any kind of respect. But then there were other poems where I am absolutely in the food and in the, you know, almost (laughs) like there's no distinguishing between the food and say body fluids. I'm just going to read Bagel. Her hands covered in cream cheese and the first snowdrops, waiting for the barge to move, a friend's friend's coat and a friend's friend's scarf, bite off the wind, protect her chest. The island is the lake's scar coming closer. I have no idea what that's about. I just adore it. But it just takes you right there, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) It talks about the lake's scar. And that's the other thing about the way that water flows. Whatever the water has to confront creates new markings in the ground underneath the lake itself. I don't even know where I'm going with this, but just to say that this sort of flow (laughs) and jolt was very much in her work and is in your commentary now and Mm. I could feel a sense of in your work and we'll get on to your work a bit more in a minute but um, there's also something about that flow or a sense of not circular like going round and round in a circle but something sort of swirling hopefully moving upwards of scars that are deep within that are carried through ancestry and they are agitated obviously by whatever's going on in the current environment and so there is this sort of constant need for healing and it absolutely makes sense of colonialism not being this year to that year in history. Mm. And Patrick Wolf said colonialism is a structure not an event he's you know he's often credited for that and he should be but he also says that that concept actually comes from indigenous scholars and people and community people and when you think about that it requires what my fantastic friend Kim Kruger said a decolonial symposium and it was in response to an exhibition by Kata Atia at Aka in Melbourne and she said this requires us to do daily acts of repair So whether that's beading in some communities or weaving or any other contemporary practice, you have to constantly be repairing yourself. And so a lot of people do talk about healing in different contexts here from psychology to, you know, community arts. But this wounding and this scarring, it never heals over. So the scarring, it's like you said, it's irritating, it triggers scar tissue and it it might bust open again or it just doesn't quite heal and then it starts to itch again and with Alan's poems and what you were talking about with water it really resonates with me because Alan's poetry a bit like water doesn't ignore anything 
So she might not explicitly name everything that's happening like in that that visual landscape she's creating with the poetry and the text. It doesn't ignore any of the reality. It's what we are constantly required to do as Aboriginal people and particularly as Aboriginal women or non-binary or trans women in our community. We have to be looking after, caring for, tending to wounds, you know, helping people heal their scars, addressing scars or documenting them. So the fight is so important because we're doing it for our ancestors and our future descendants. You understand where your place is in history. So before when you mentioned, you know, whether time is like a cycle, in a sense it is. And then during one of these lockdowns, I think I had this strange epiphany that time was a loop, that I was in some sort of a loop because every Saturday I water all of my houseplants. And this thing was happening that I thought, oh, it's Saturday. I need to water the plants, but it can't be Saturday again. Oh, it is Saturday again. It felt like it was happening every second day. And then I had this other strange feeling of everything being in a loop. And I thought, am I repeating and going through exactly what my mum and nan and great-grandmother did and great-great-grandmother? And am I the same person or embodied spirit as my ancestors? you know we're thinking about who our descendants will be then I'm the future ancestor and a wonderful uncle called uncle Herb Patton an indigenous elder here once he said on the indigenous radio station 3KD he said think about what kind of ancestor you want to be gosh yeah so this notion of looping and time and our responsibility in what I wouldn't call a timeline but our ongoing presence really gets to me and I love things that move like water or mercury because it sort of reminds you that you can't control it and that, you know, in a riverbed, and I grew up on the river, you know, it's not like filling a swimming pool with water. There's no definitive spot where the water stops. Mm. It seeps into the bank. There's a layer of lovely gooey, you know, sand and then clay and then perhaps rocks. So at, at what point does that water stop infiltrating the earth and where does it spring up? And there's this ongoing relationship between the big river red gums on the banks of the river and the trees, that water's flowing through those trees back down into there and the connection with the sky and moisture in the clouds and coming back to earth again. So when we think it's contained when it's not. That's right. And it's continually changing with the weather. And in my own work, I am often looking at water and quite specifically at the moment at snakes. Mm. Rivers are often referred to as snakes and snakes are such symbols for change. Well, there's a big serpent creator spirit called Biami who is said to have created the Dungala, which is what's known as the Murray River. And there's other rainbow serpent stories about who created the waterways here. So they leave their mark in country. I vaguely recall stories about rainbow serpents, but I am of the generation that got all the lovely stories about the Indigenous Australians and not much of the reality, which I only started to learn about actually through songs and through through the lyrics of Midnight Oil and mm. Yothu Yindi and mm. it was actually through music. And then mm. there were a lot of us who got into our late teens and, you know, it comes back to that book, Why Weren't We Told, mm. where we were just shocked and ashamed that we knew nothing. Mm. But coming back to the book and food. This is kind of a segue into your art practice. One of the things that is a really direct connection with food is those images of you as Muk Muk, the wild spirit woman. (laughs) So I love the title of one of them, which is I woke up like this. Yeah. (laughs) 
and and some of those you know I can see you're in the kitchen you're devouring food you've got it rubbed all over your face and you're mm. licking the knife and mm. part of your lineage is also obviously your dad's side and the Italian and Italy is all about food so food is a massive part of your life well so obviously it's a massive part of everybody's <laughs> life but tell me about your connection with food Sure. Yeah. So in that work, and there's a, there's a couple of other ones in the Mook Mook series, and a story about her was also documented by the late great elder Animaj Tucker, uh, Laladia, in her book, If Everyone Cared. And that was one of the very first Aboriginal autobiographies in the world. And she recounts this story of being told about the Mook Mook, who's this spirit woman entity that will steal young men and also take your children if you're not looking after them. So if you're weaving a basket and you've got your back to your kids who are laying on a possum skin cloak next to you, she'll just run along and grab them. So the women started to wear the cloaks on their back and put the baby in it like a, you know, a baby sling. So in around 2014, when I did that series, I was recovering from a complete breakdown that I'd had. And it was transgenerational traumas that I'd inherited as an Aboriginal woman, but also some horrific sexual violence that I'd experienced. And in that space, I was thinking a lot about taking on this entity to give me strength. And so I thought, what if Wook came to life through my body in the Western suburbs of Footscray, where people are quickly gentrifying our area? And what if I just make her like, you know, like a soccer mum or a footy mum and get her making cupcakes to take to the school? <laughs> Would she be able to fit in? So I did this photo series where I've got my hair brushed out as big and wild as I can get it. And I've adorned my hair with a native dried bouquet and I also put some Patterson's Curse in there which is like a an introduced weed and she's got workout gear on and an apron and she's wearing an Aboriginal weaved basket and I'm wearing workout pants but I've also got like blue suede high heels on so she's trying to be everything to everyone and she likes to bake so she starts baking you know emu egg gluten-free chocolate cakes and things like that. I'm glad it's gluten-free. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just wanted to play with food and the notion of her trying to be like an Igella Lawson kind of domestic goddess who's sexy and doesn't wear bras or underwear, by the way, and she's just free. You know, she's a wild woman, so she doesn't know what the rules are, so she doesn't really follow them. There's some clues in the shoot, like there's a tea towel from Calabria, but there's also a tea towel from the 1970s about Aboriginal people that's really awful. So it's part of this collection of things that I've got of what Tony Albert, the artist, calls Aboriginalia. So all of that horrible kitsch stuff made about our people. So, yeah, I love playing with the notion of food too because when I grew up, like, we were on the poverty line and, you know, mum really struggled financially as a single mum raising us. So we grew up with this culture of making rations do and once a year or so I'd, I'd get on a bus and I'd visit my Italian father who actually ran a pizza pasta restaurant so to get there and be surrounded by an abundance of food with no limits they'd constantly just say manja manja eat eat and so I would put on like up to a stone in weight so I was going from one extreme to the other that's an astonishing story I recently was watching Tracy Moffat's nice colored girls where they're parodying uh, parodying and participating and having a wonderful time mm. with food yeah I love nice colored girls it's one of my absolute favorites and that notion of survival as in having to manipulate or con up a white man with money to get 
to survive is tragically a position that Aboriginal women were placed in in this country. But I'm also really proud of that survival. And um, one of the funniest stories my mum told me was about a night that she was out with her cousin and she said, we were really hungry at the end of this night. We had no money left and weren't even sure how they were going to get home. And this white guy had um, a hot dog and he was just about to bite it. And Auntie Stacey just leaned over and put her head in between him and the hot dog and took a huge bite out of it. <laughs> she just brilliant. kept walking I yeah, wasn't yeah. even there and I still just I could see it so vividly <laughs> and then just their beautiful laughter as they sauntered off into the night you know that's really like in nice colored girls like that reality and it's also not playing by these white polite rules of society about trying to pass ourselves off as having good manners and all that rubbish respect and fear and respect and politeness for me are not the same things you know, respect is about something deeper. I'm going to move on now to your curating. Obviously, we've talked a little bit about your photographs and you also do installation. And I notice in the screen behind you, because uh, we're doing this interview over Zoom, that you have an image from a recent piece of work, which we're mm. going to talk about. And bush dyeing, which you are increasingly doing. But you're also an academic. In fact, you are Dr. Carla Bella, excuse me. (laughs) And you're also a curator. And I think what's quite clear from our discussion so far is that not only is there an overlap between your art practice with your life, with your ancestry, with your politics, with activism, but also between all these different specialisms. I've got a painting practice and I'm also a podcaster and I also write. So it's very hard to find time to do all of them, but then they all feed one another as well. So maybe if we could just start off with the curating, which is Mm. part of your practice. And you you once wrote that to curate means to care. The first curators I knew were my mother, grandmother and aunties with very little materially they were able to create homes of love and beauty that made us proud to live in. And you've certainly recreated different houses. I mean, one of them, I know you actually installed with your daughter, but there's this sort of natural intergenerational inclusion. And from what my research has told me that there is in Indigenous culture, this idea that the ancestors are still with you. So Maybe you could say a little bit about your curating. In fact, maybe we could talk about it in the context of the exhibition treaty from last Mm. year, in which you were curator and artist. Sure. Like I said, and that piece that you read out, thank you for that, because I haven't done curatorial studies formally. I did a Bachelor of Education and then I did a Master's and a Postgraduate Diploma in Community Cultural Praxis. Mm -hmm. And then I went on to do my PhD in the practice-led project. And I think in all of that work and in reflecting on why and how I do what I do, I realised that I was so influenced and immersed in these places that my grandmother and mother created. And my mother was always very, very nostalgic and I wasn't mature enough to understand. And so it's about this idea of, like you said, 
time continuing and ancestors being with you and constantly grieving for people that are gone and often gone way too soon. And so when their lives end prematurely, I think you're compelled to keep bringing them and recognizing them in the present. It's a bit like Ellen's poetry. She doesn't ignore anything. So storytelling becomes this really important practice to keep them with you and to tell your children and grandchildren about these people. And I realized how deeply they influenced my curatorial practice because I thought they created the most beautiful homes that were very modest. Mm. And most of the time they were shopping in op shops. We would even go to the local garbage tip. So, you know, they were recycling, they were upcycling, they were doing everything that now will get you a reality show, yet that was their survival. And so my mum's home and my nan's home, they were just this beautiful combination of original visual art, fake Aboriginal artefacts and real Aboriginal artefacts made by family members. And it made perfect sense. There was no classism. There was no separating these objects from each other. They were in relationship and dialogue with each other. And so that really influenced me. And for me, talking about care is because the relationship is the most important thing and that the person who creates the work is not separate to it and is not to be separated from it nor is their community or their ancestors or where it comes from. So there might be different protocols and processes that we will take in order to bring an exhibition together. Like with Treaty, that was more difficult than usual because it all had to be remote during lockdown. Oh, of course. That didn't even occur to me. That was in 2021. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really thrilled because the lead curators at Wyndham Arts and Cultural Centre had already conceptualised this show and wanted it to happen. And it was a former curator called Marie Clark and the current one, Dr. Megan Evans. And they invited me to curate it. But what I did was the same process as in I thought deeply about who was making work about this or in response to it, not necessarily explicitly about Treaty, but a number of the artists had already. So I knew about their current works. I just, sorry, interrupt you there because Treaty is quite specific, isn't it, in Victoria? Do you want to just explain what that comes from? Well, this place, as in Australia, as a colony, it's the only colonised nation that does not have a treaty with its Indigenous peoples. And so it's basically a community push to have a sense of justice enacted by having a treaty with our peoples, not an Australia-wide one. This is very specific to this place and to the 38 Aboriginal clan groups of Victoria. One of the most recent arms of it is the Uruk Truth and Justice Commission. So they'll have the power to actually do inquiries into why things keep happening like Aboriginal tribe removal and and deaths in custody and things like that so yeah it will be very important. Sorry what was the first thing Aboriginal deaths in custody what was the one you said before that? Oh and Aboriginal child removal so in, in Victoria currently an Aboriginal child is 11 times removed at the rate of a non-Indigenous child or an Anglo child in particular. So By social services, you mean? Yeah. So a lot of people say that it's the creation of another stolen generation that took place here. Mm. And also, I imagine the gap between life expectancy for Indigenous mm. people and uh, white people. As part of the treaty exhibition, Dr. Megan Evans did talk about the idea of sovereignty and needing to define what that is with words like autonomy, independence, self-government, self-rule, home rule, self-legislation, self-determination and freedom. And as part of that exhibition, you create a piece called Banner Time. 
literally a series of hanging banners with text on them. Do you want to talk a little bit about that piece of work? So I combined a few different practices in that work, as in the bush dyeing practice that I just started at the sort of midway of my PhD. Perhaps you can say what bush dyeing is. Sure. I call it bush dyeing to recognise and respect the Aboriginal women who really created the practice. So it's where you take native plants, berries, flowers, gum, tree, leaves, depending on where you are, it's the Indigenous plants that are specific to that place. And you basically boil them in water. So you're making like a master stock. You're drawing the natural dyes out of the plant matter into the water. And then you submerge fabric into that water. So with the Banner Time Works, I bush dyed calico. And for me, I imprint onto the fabric at the same time that you're dyeing it. So it's like almost a photographic process. If I'm doing a work focusing on gum leaves, I might collect gum leaves and then I'll actually strip them from the branches and place the leaves onto the fabric. You roll it over, the fabric has to be wet and you can use a mordant like rust. And then you actually roll the fabric up into bundles and you tightly bind it with wool or string and you submerge that into the boiling water that already has some other plant matter in it. You can leave it to cool and the colours and the printing from the plant material will intensify over time. Okay, so that's why on the fabrics that you've dyed, and I've seen a few of them, I was wondering how the registration of the colours are really textured. Yeah, okay. And every single piece is completely different. And you can't control how the inks will move once they're in the water. And then what happens is it becomes a bit like like a spirit reading where you read into the patterns. And so with the banner time works, I wanted to be evocative of protest banners that you carry through the streets. And we do that constantly as Aboriginal people. So I wanted to bring those two practices together to remind people that the treaty process is political. There are a spectrum of people participating in it, some who are working very closely with the government that some people feel they might be compromising. And on the other hand, we've got really staunch community activists in there too that want to make sure that it's upholding community grassroots and ways of being. And that's why they're just hanging on branches that are collected from parklands and riverbanks. And tell me about the text that's on them. So the text, they've got key terms on there like treaty itself, self-determination, so it's one of those sovereign terms. I've got nunila on one, which is a Wemba Wemba language word, and that means to listen and learn. Ah, okay. Unceded, sovereign and self-determined. And they're referring to these very important practices and values that we hold dear in this process. And just to remind people that, you know, we never ceded our sovereignty. So they work as a group, but they also work separately. And it was different for me because I don't always put my own work in shows that I curate. And it depends on the gallery or who's invited me. And if they're saying to me, we'd love you to put work in it as well. I feel more comfortable if that happens. But like with this show, when you know your relationships with community and people, there's a responsibility you carry as an Indigenous curator that you make sure that people are looked after and that there's a deep level of respect and care that's taking place in how people are communicated with, how their works are picked up or dropped off, to make sure that any extra resources that person might need to get to a gallery or to make sure their fees paid really quickly, things like that, because we're dealing with very real disadvantage. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that was a show that specifically had such a diverse range of works. I mean, you mm. had Corey Thorpe with the Brothers in Arms painting, which features a young man with a T-shirt saying, free the flag. I don't think we've got time to go into it now, but, you know, the Indigenous flag has literally been such an amazing symbol of the struggle of Indigenous people. I mean, I remember when Kathy Freeman flew the flag uh, at the Commonwealth Games. Yeah, yeah. I remember being at home and we're just laughing. We're just so thrilled to see at last, you know, <laughs> her standing up, or standing up and running around, obviously, mm. but also the rights to use the flag in the first place. And obviously you've got the take on the twisties packet, <laughs> but right down to jewellery and those beautiful discs of... Oh, Laura Thompson's, yeah. In fact, I went online because I thought, oh, wonder if you can buy those. They're out of stock at the moment. Yeah, they're very popular. But like just speaking of, you know, the Free the Flag campaign, she was instrumental to that because mm. it was her company and other Aboriginal people that activated with her to get that process known worldwide and to eventually got it freed as it is now. So, yeah, it's been very interesting to watch how that all unfolded. So I'd like to move to a piece that I just think is really exceptional. And it appeared in the Willem Bick exhibition. Is that how I say it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, curated by Stacey Piper at the Tarawara Museum of Art. I really want you to just talk about your own work here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And Willem Bick, I understand, means home country in Wolwurrung language. Woi Warang. So you have to roll your eyes. Warang. We warang. Yeah. <laughs> and you've created a piece called Murrup, meaning ghost, weaving in Rosie Kukala, which is grandmother's camp. It's an immersive installation. So rather like, you know, the banner works, you can walk around in it. And in this case, you can walk inside an open door tent. It's accompanied by your grandmother, Rosie Tang's painted landscape image, she painted in 1978 and you have blown it up and reproduced it as a wallpaper. Yeah, and it's six metres in height and eight metres wide. So it's quite large. So it has this wonderful sense of something really expansive. And then you have this gorgeous tent in front of it and the words kukala on the front, which I understand means a place of shelter and respite and healing. Mm. So they're normally made of gum tree boughs covered in leaves, but in this case, you've made it out of silks, which you've bush dyed. When I was talking about, you know, my grandmother and mother teaching me how to curate homes, I think it's an extension of that work in that I realise I've been recreating homes or shelters in my work for a really long time. I think sometimes, you know, in your practice, you have your head down in it and you sort of look up and realise that you've been making the same thing over and over just in different iterations. Mm. <laughs> so I think that's where this sense of like an echo or a nostalgia for a stable place to belong is very present for me. And that's what I created in a sense with this work. So it was the next major piece I created after my PhD. And in my PhD exhibition, I created another mission house that I collaborated with another artist on to construct for me. And it still had the soft fabric, but it was a very heavy, sturdy frame. Whereas this frame... 
you're referring there to unconditional love space, right? Your PhD house. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this house, sorry, go on. No, so this one, I knew that it had to be lighter because of the nature of the theme of the show that Stacey had briefed us on. And I wanted it to sit softly and gently on country, almost as if it was floating. So I researched the type of frame I needed for it. And I mean, in the end, honestly, I settled on a gazebo frame from a commercial tent store. But then my challenge was that I had to disguise that. I had to hide sort of the harsh, cold colonial reality of this camping glamour. So I wanted to cover that up with this softness of these beautiful, floating, spiritual, difficult to kind of pin down patterns on the organza. So I went with silk organza so that it would float and move when people would go inside of it. It's like it's covered in this sort of spirit dress. Yeah. And it worked really well. I'm really happy with it because I had to cover every single centimetre of the metal frame with this fabric. So in a sense, when I installed it and my daughter, Rosie Kalina, assisted me to do it, it took us three days of essentially wrapping this thing. It was almost like we were bandaging an object. We were healing it, repairing it. So there was a lot of stripping and cutting of the fabrics that are already prepared. So there are about 250 pieces in this one, I think, in total. And it's three meters wide by three meters tall plus there's an elevated almost like circus tent roof on it that goes up another two meters the kukula language on the front was actually screen printed in gold foil for me with the fabulous spacecraft studios oh okay and that language is my matriarchal language and the actual font that i needed it to relay this language of kukula which is grandmother's place or camp and what i ended up doing was working with Spacecraft Studios to actually scan and enlarge the very language itself from the Wemba Wemba Dictionary that was written and researched in the 1960s with my great-grandmother, and she was spoken of as being the last speaker of Wemba Wemba language, and her name was Nancy Egan, and she worked with a linguist, um, Mrs Louise Herkus from the Australian National University, to save our language, to document it because our languages were banned. So my great-grandmother and her brother, Uncle Stanley, kept it in secret. So I'm so proud of that. And I wanted that to be present in the work as well. So it's not just my grandmother, it's my grandmother's mother and those generations of language keepers protecting it. And that's why it was important to me to include my nan's painting as not just a background, but actually a foregrounding, a contextualization. And also because it breaks my heart that she was such a talented artist who only ever got to exhibit twice in her life. And to teach herself to paint with oils that beautifully, I just think is stunning. And for an Aboriginal woman who was forced out of school, you know, as a 12-year-old, she was told that there was no future for her in education. You know, Black kids were denied their education in this country. They were forced out of school into manual labour. And that's what my grandmother had to do. She was a servant for white people. I mean, I just think it's astonishing that she even found time to do any painting, let alone pass that on as a really valuable way to manage your inside life, I suppose. I know. Yeah, that's incredible. Meaning because she worked so hard and in, well, obviously very harsh conditions. Yes, and she created her own exhibition on the wall of a cattle station at 16 years of age where she was living and working. And I just thought that was so extraordinary. 
And we've only got a couple of my grandmother's paintings. She sold a few from one other exhibition she was in in the 1980s. A lot of them were sold to tourists who would come from Germany and the UK and take them back with them. But this one was sent back to me during the lockdowns from a lovely friend of my grandmother's. And a few weeks later, she passed away. And it turns out she was very sick, but she didn't tell me. Gosh, what a beautiful story. So beautiful. And her name was Carol Higgs, and she was a lovely lady. So when this exhibition came up, I kept thinking, I need to include my grandmother's painting. And I just immediately thought, I need to supersize this painting because it's quite tiny. It's only about 25 centimetres wide. And I thought, I wonder how it would stand, like being enlarged, the resolution and everything. And it was just fantastic. It just didn't lose anything. It actually grew in stature. And what evokes, I imagine, the experience of that installation is not only the scene setting and the fact that you can go inside the tent, but also, would I refer to it as a tent? Is that the right word? Everyone had their own take on it. For elders, it looked like a lean-to that they would create out of, you know, gum leaves and gum boughs to rest under. For some people, it's a mission house. What do you mean by mission house there? Oh, so missions and reserves were places that were created by colonists to round up Aboriginal people to live on. And so our people's lives were completely controlled by the churches at first, then the state through what they called Aboriginal protection ministers or officers. The activist Professor Gary Foley calls them concentration camps because our people had to get permission to leave, to move, to marry, to get jobs. So it was predominantly done where there were rich, fertile farming lands. So that's why I say I'm from Munakala Mission and Framlingham Mission, because that's the roots of our people's survival in those spaces. And my great-grandmother had a little house that looked just like this tent. And so they were very small one-room huts that a mother might be raising five children in. Like my great-grandmother had 10 children. My great-great-grandmother had 10 children. My grandmother had four and she raised five in these tiny little places that did not have running water, did not have electricity. They papered the walls with newspaper to keep the cold out and they would make the hard dirt floors so spotlessly clean by sprinkling them with water and brushing them with gum leaves. And, you know, my grandmother literally slept on a bed of gum leaves in a hessian sack. So this notion of our people not having access to proper housing and to the freedom of country to have to live like this was very humiliating. And I think by the time I got to about 35, I'd lived in 36 different houses just through rental instability and poverty and trauma issues. My biggest dream is to own a home. And I think I keep making houses or semblance of houses in my art because I'm trying to manifest it. Goodness me. But also what strikes me is that you're, pardon the pun, you're painting a picture of something really difficult, actually really quite devastating, but actually I don't get the sense from the tent you've made for the exhibition at all. To me, it looks very beautiful. The way that you've constructed it with your daughter Rosie is really moving. You've got the bush dyeing technique, so all the fabrics look really intricately worked by hand. And also on top of that, part of the bush dyeing is the smells of whatever is seasonal, obviously, that's embedded in the fabric as well. So for somebody who's saying there are so many people from my culture for whom housing has been denied, 
and I am still in a situation where I don't have a home myself and that's my dream and yet look at this dream that you're sharing with other people I just find it incredibly hopeful Mm. it's interesting because when I see it I feel the sadness and the loss but I don't feel that I have the right to or want to make work that explicitly says all of those horrors because you know I was raised by matriarchs that did not do that you still see it it still manifests it might come out in a very you know dark humor or they knew that complaining was futile but they fight like they're real fighters. And so I just feel that responsibility that it's not my right to make work that would also then say re-traumatize my own people because I want a space that is comforting to Aboriginal people but challenges non-Aboriginal people about the things they don't know. And so someone might, like you said, they'll see my work as soft and inviting and beautiful and maybe a bit mysterious, but once they are inside it, they start to have to wonder about its roots and then when they read a bit more and uncover a bit more that process is theirs not mine do you know what I mean yeah absolutely there was something that Tony Morrison the writer said if art is lacking any politics I'm not interested in it and that you should make work that is irrevocably beautiful and political at the same time well that's exactly what it looks like so (laughs) oh thank you one of the things that seem to come across from Stacy and also in your work from what we've just been talking about is this idea of see feel and touch so in the description for the exhibition for instance there's the text how do we see country how do we listen to country how do we connect to country and you have talked about that in the context of your grandmother teaching you to see and feel your country through art and obviously an installation that's immersive has that element to it as well and what I wanted to ask about which is connected to this see feel touch but also to the sentence structure that you have used throughout this conversation and that is used in the text that's about connecting to country is not to the country or to our country or to my country it's to country and it really strikes me as very important and to me it sort of diminishes the distance between you know you as a person and the earth that you're walking on where does that come from for you I think it comes out of the immediacy of our relationship to country. Mm. We often just push back on the grammatical rules that English holds and that people try to use against us. So, for example, we have a lot of battles with white editors that impose, like, grammatical rules on us. Oh, okay. So in that sense that I dismiss rules about curatorial practice and art, I dismiss rules about English as well. It's a way of expressing resistance. And country for us is our traditional homelands, our matriarchal or patriarchal lineage to that, and the air and the waters that are part of that. Everything that's on it and in it and comes from it and the spiritual creative beings that brought it to us and made it. So it's all one. So country is its own being. And the writer Tony Birch talks about country having its own rights as a living entity and so that's why I think it's more respectful just to refer to it as country. I was listening to Jude Barlow talk who's a Ngunnawal elder 
she, and she was talking about country being a term, as you say, to describe lands and waterways and seas to which you're connected, but it also has these complex ideas about law and place and custom and language, spiritual belief, cultural practice, yeah. and all those other issues of identity. But what occurs to me, though, is a kind of separation from country that I imagine is a lot more meaningful to you than it might be to me. And when I say that, I mean that in the context of me personally. And when I moved to this country, certainly the first five years, my deepest grief was that I'd left my mother country. Mm. In fact, for the Will and Bick exhibition, there is actually a playlist on Spotify, which I was listening to. And the band Alara uh, sing this song called Murnong Farm. Yeah, Alara's amazing. And the lyrics for it say, I'm going to start a Murnong farm <laughs> in my rental in Preston. Yes, isn't that gorgeous? So brilliant. But it is really heartbreaking because it is about separation from country. Yeah. And you are obviously living in what's referred to as the city of Melbourne and a separation from country for you. Although I didn't realise you'd lived in so many places. So I'm not sure how you kind of locate yourself. I always locate myself through my matriarchal homelands, which is Wemba and also with great respect to Gunditjmara, which is our patriarchal connection through my great-grandfather, who was a Gunditjmara man. But most Victorian Aboriginal cultures, we go by a matriarchal line. And I long for it constantly. I miss it. I miss it like a person. When I stand on it, I don't feel like I know where my feet stop and country begins. It's like this cyclic relationship. You just feel completely safe, completely at home. It makes you feel nourished and loved. And it's just beautiful. And you know that your ancestors are on that land. I mean, we're talking about 60 to 80,000 years occupation at least. When you're there, you feel that presence, like you feel your ancestors, you feel the spirit of the place and connection to that place and through language and mark making, art making. So I try to evoke all of that in my art, um, but I'm also very respectful of the beautiful, you know, Bunurang and Moiburang countries that I live on because they keep me and my kids in this place and safe and it's where we do our work. And so in all of my art practice, it's connected to that cultural practice. So I'll be checking in with my mum and saying, is it okay if I tell this story? Because these stories that I put in my work don't just belong to me, they're collective. So I have to remember that responsibility. And that's why I don't want to traumatise my people with the work. And an artist I greatly admire, Dr. Fiona Foley, she's got this great book out, a number of books recently, but one's called Biting the Clouds. And in that, she talks about making work that doesn't re-traumatise Aboriginal people. Like, how do you do that? And what's your responsibility that when so many people don't know the horrific truth of what was done to us, and what continues happening to us, you know, you want to share that and you want to make work about it, but how do you do that responsibly? So it's a great challenge, you know, to hold that and to tell it. And you touched on before this passing on of stories and asking your mum. I certainly remember growing up, there were stories that we were, as non-Aboriginals, not entitled to hear about in terms of Dreamtime stories, and some of them that we obviously did hear about. But you belong to a, a very, very long tradition of storytelling, and we are going to have to finish up. I'm so sorry to say, because I love this conversation, <laughs> and I was wondering if you'd 
could tell me about other books and other stories that have been important to you? Oh, the other thing is I'm obsessed with books. Like if you could see my bookshelf and beside my bed. (laughs) And they're almost all by Indigenous authors. Our people are prolific writers, you know, and we've been writing back to this place, you know, since the beginning. I mentioned Annie Marge's book before, If Everyone Cared. That's been very important to me. The actual book as an artifact itself, not just its contents. The 1977, one of the first editions my mother gifted to me. It was my grandmother's and it's it's actually autographed by Annie Marge. I love a book called um, Talking Up to the White Woman by Professor Aileen Morton Robinson. That's an amazing response to white feminism and really lays out an Aboriginal woman's standpoint. I think that probably relates quite a lot to, just for people who don't know about the book, that feminism has been overtaken by white women's voices. I mean, I would probably asterisk that somewhat with the elite. So, for instance, in America, black women who were saying, actually, no, can you not speak for us? You know, we want a distinctly different voice. There's women in the UK as well, the suffragette movement. They were not given their own voice. Mm. So, yeah, these things are really important for everybody to think about, because if we look at these things, then we can look at how we continuing to do this now. What are we putting in place now that keeps that going? Yeah. And as an Aboriginal woman, for me, my my gender and my Aboriginality are both as important, but in fact, I actually think about myself as a Wemba Wemba Ngunditjmara person before I think about my gender. So the well-being of my people comes first. And because the feminist movement really either ignored us or deliberately erased us or left us out, and it continues to, like the Me Too movement here recently just completely erased Aboriginal women's voices. And then there's a whole range of books I just adore. Exhibition catalogues, particularly one called Urban Dingo, The Art and Life of Lynn Onis, one of my favourite artists. And I've got a lot, I've got a little collection of books about Frida Kahlo because she's one of my heroes as well. And a recent book, Another Day in the Colony by Professor Chelsea Watergo is fantastic. It's amazing. Speaking of Tracy Moffat in, uh, was it Bedevil? Oh, Bedevil, yeah. Bedevil. Yeah. And Frida Kahlo (laughs) is a transgender person. (laughs) So brilliant. So random. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Anyway, we must finish up. It's just been (laughs) absolutely delightful. There have been times where it's been quite difficult to not cry actually listening to you. I'm so grateful that you've been so generous with your time, Paola Bella, and thank you very much for being on Art Fictions. Thank you so much, Gillian. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, and also a huge thanks to the very talented Wemba Wemba and Gunditch Mara artist Paula Bella. Art Fiction's Culture Exchange is part of the UK-Australia season, which is a partnership between the British Council and the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs. Guests for the series are artistic practitioners whose work is underpinned by geographical shifts, upheavals and or excavations within their cultural identity. The music for this self-produced, abridged podcast was written and performed by Griffin Knipe, while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created the Art Fictions logo. If you'd like to support the series, please subscribe and rate, and you're welcome to get in touch with me directly via my Art Fictions podcast Instagram or my website gilliannipe.com. Happy reading and art viewing until next time. Have a lovely evening and uh, tell me what's on for tonight. 
my husband has cooked dinner which is really nice and unfortunately I have marking to do so I'm teaching pre-service teachers at the moment about Indigenous history and how to okay. implement Indigenous studies into their teaching and I'm just going to hang out with my son you know we're all isolating because of COVID so I'm just yeah and I just might I don't know probably watch something really trashy on Netflix after that <laughs> to relax yeah no I can relate to that Okay, all the very best. My heart goes out to you, Paula. Bye-bye. Oh, you too. Take care. Thank you. Bye.